1: This episode of Get Booked is sponsored by TBR,
0: Book Riot's new subscription
1: service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Been dreaming of a Stitch Fix for books? Well, now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive either hardcover books in the mail or recommendations via email, so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co slash to sign up today, that's Treat Your Shelf Like Your Bookshelf, because we love puns. That's mytbr.co slash treat your shelf. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 148, and we are recording on September 11th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Alice Burton, host of our nonfiction podcast, For Real, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thanks for to having me. Alice has been on before with Kim, right? Who is your co host? Yes. Yes. So, in honor of having a nonfiction velociraptor, this is going to be like a 99% nonfiction show. There is one fiction book that I'm going to recommend later, but for the most part, this is, this is all it actually happened all the time.
0: Yes. And, and that is not a, that's like actually an amazing thing that we should all just, just gaze in wonder at the fact <laughs> that these things really happened in our world. Some of them are, are like, gays and wonder-worthy. Some of them are, like, ooh. That's very
1: true. That's a good That's a good little caveat with that. Um, so, as, you know, our regular ris- listeners know, I had Shrifa on last week because Jen is gallivanting around Ireland. And next week, Jen will have a guest because I'm fleeing from Hurricane Florence and will not be here to record. <laughs> so, welcome to, you know, the, like, I don't know, like, Quarter of guests on guest book like Q3 is the guest show. I don't know. I was trying to make that clever, and it just didn't turn out. Their guests is what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. I
0: thought anyway. it came across fantastically, and I'm glad you have an escape plan because that hurricane looks scary.
1: It's real scary. Yeah. If you are, I mean, this show drops on Thursday, so which is when the storm is supposed to make landfall. So you know, like if you're in South Carolina or North Carolina, you should have already evacuated because your governor's told you to. So gets to going. All right, on to less hurricane related topics what are you reading right
0: now uh thank you for asking i am reading 99 glimpses of princess margaret uh by craig brown and it's basically this a uh, very fascinating biography of princess margaret told in 99 kind of little vignettes but some are not true they're like alternate universe fan fiction and i love it it's so good
1: <laughs> alternate universe fan fiction of princess margaret is like I don't know. I'm so glad that exists, but not a thing I ever expected to exist <laughs> in the world. Um, I am reading When by Daniel H. Pink, which has been making its way around the Book staff. Uh, sometimes the staff gets like really into one specific kind of like businessy book and then everybody reads it, not because we have to, but just because it sounds great. Like it happened with Bored and Brilliant. And so this is the new one that like everybody's reading. And this is about chronobiology, which I had never heard of. But this is the science of, like, when to do, th- when people do things during the day based on, like, your circadian rhythms and um, when it's best to do a certain type of tasks, you know, based on whether, like, you're a morning person or a night person. Um, and there's all, it's just nuts. Like, apparently the Lusitania sunk because the captain was trying to make hard choices in the middle of the afternoon, which is a terrible time to make hard choices. No one should do anything at 3 p.m., basically, <laughs> is the thesis of this book, which is, Uh, true? Like, I don't function at all in the late afternoon. And he talks about what he calls a nappuccino, which I'm so scared to try, but it sounds amazing. Where you drink, like, you down a cup of coffee, immediately go to take, like, a 20-minute nap. Your body takes 25 minutes for the caffeine, to, like, process the caffeine. So you get the cat nap, and then as soon as you wake up, the caffeine is kicking in. So he calls it a nappuccino. And this is apparently what everyone should be doing. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I know. Smart. Uh, That sounds fantastic. It's really interesting, and I don't want to do anything between the hours of, like, noon and four, which sucks when you have a job. (laughs) And, like, (laughs) children, and live in a capitalist society where people expect you to do things. Okay, moving on, how the show works. Um, As I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations, so if you need a reading rec for yourself or your book club, or a gift for someone, or maybe you're going somewhere and want to read about it before you get there... You can send us your reading recommendation request via email to getbookedatbookwrite.com or you can drop them in the form uh, in the show notes. There's a form at the bottom of the show notes. If your question is time sensitive, please let us know either in the subject line if you're using the email or in very big letters as your first sentence if you're using the form. If we're not, excuse me, If we're not going to get to your question in time, we will email you back. We might also email you back if we've already answered your question on the show at some point. You know, 148 episodes in, it's, you know, likely, so we might just email you back uh, with new recommendations for your request. Okay, feedback. Um, From Kelly, who left us a comment uh, for Jessica, who on the previous episode wanted true crime books that were, like, not super violent. Kelly recommends Ghost in the Wires, My Adventures as the World's Most Wanted Hacker by Kevin Mitnick. That sounds cool. Um, And also Catch Me If You Can for 21st Century stuff, which is, you know, a hacker turns security consultant, recaptures his life of crime. And Captured by the FBI. And that was a movie, I'm pretty
0: sure, yes? Yes. Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Okay. So we're going to get to it. I'm going to read our first question and tell you about our first sponsor. And then monologue for hours, apparently. This is what's happening. All right. Our first question is from Bevan, who says, I'm looking for book recommendations for my mom. Good nonfiction about the Civil War, Reconstruction, or the Jim Crow era. This weekend I was visiting with my parents and it became very evident that my mom, who is almost 70, has some cringeworthy misconceptions about the origins of the Civil War along the like it wasn't about slavery. Many slaves had love for their masters kind of thing and doesn't have an understanding of how current cycles of poverty can be traced back to how black Americans were treated after the Civil War. My father and I have tried to help, but she's resistant to most things my dad says. (laughs) Doesn't that just describe all of our parents? Uh, I gave her my copy of Howard Zinn's A Young People's History of the United States, and she actually asked for books that could help her understand the plight of freed slaves after the Civil War. Okay, so before we get into that, we're going to talk about our first sponsor, which is Nobody Real by Stephen Camden, published by HarperCollins. Uh, this author is also like a really famous spoken word poet. He performs as Polar Bear. So if you've heard that name, then, and then this is who the book is coming from. So in this book, for years, the main character, Mercy has been hitching a ride on the train of her best friend, Kara's life. Now there's just one more summer until they're all off to college as planned. But Mercy has a secret and time is running out for her to decide what she really wants in her life. Thor, yes, Thor was also Marcy's best friend before she cast him out, and time is running out for him too. But Thor's not real, and that's kind of a problem. So this is the story of a teenage girl and the return of her imaginary friend. And you've probably not read anything like this. It's got some Inception-like qualities and alternate POV. So if you're into uh, books with that kind of, you know, uh, where the point of view switches between characters, and this is right up your alley, so go check out Nobody Real by Stephen Camden. And thank you for sponsoring the show. All right, I'm just going to keep going. Because I'm on a roll now. So my recommendation for your mother is Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America by Patrick Phillips. Um, If she's into audiobooks, I would really recommend listening to this on audio. Because he, the author, is from Georgia. And he has just the most soothing, like comforting southern accent and it just takes all of your defenses down like you're just ready for him to tell you about anything what he tells you ends up being like horrifying racial violence but it you're you're going into it like oh what a nice man (laughs) and I'm sure he is a very nice man actually he is I met him he was a book right live there we go anyway so this is a book about Forsyth County Georgia um where the author is from at the turn of the 20th century, you know, uh, it was a home to a really large black American community. Uh, a lot of the residents were poor sharecroppers, but others were landowners and, you know, tradesmen, ministers, teachers. Um, and then in 1912, three young black men were accused of raping and murdering a white girl. Um, there were lynchings. And soon after that, a band of white men who called themselves Night Riders launched this huge coordinated campaign in Forsyth. of of burning down houses and running people out of town. And it drove over a thousand of the black citizens out of the county, which was all of them. In the wake of this situation, the white people in Forsyth County took over the abandoned farms um, and like silently started altering land deeds and uh, taking over crops. And so the, the Forsyth remained all white until the 1990s. And it was what it was like a sundown county where nobody who wasn't white was safe after dark, uh, and this is where Patrick Phillips grew up. And so it's part memoir. And Patrick Phillips is white, and his family, his parents, were civil rights act- white civil rights activists in the '60s. Um, so they were kind of misfits in Forsyth County, um, and they moved there, I think, from Atlanta. So it's partially a memoir of him discovering the racial history of his town, and like. N- growing up and starting to notice, like, why is everyone here white? You know, the South is very diverse. It has a very large Black population, especially Georgia, but there is no one here. And the more he dug, the more he realized that this is what's happening. And there, and since your mother has a, has trouble, you know, making the connection between this kind of violence and the state of the African-American community now, he talks in this book about how the people who were driven off their land never saw reparations and how their children and their children's children and like all the way up until the present are still feeling the repercussions of that of you know so much of middle class success in America is about your your ancestors being landed um and having property and these families were totally robbed of that and there are like um what do you call right reparation committees talking about what to do with the descendants of the people who were driven off the land. So it's just a really fascinating and educational easy read. So that's Blood at the Root by Patrick Phillips.
0: Dang. Um, Mm. (laughs) that's, I'm really glad that you focused on a community because my pick is much more sort of on the political side of things and like what people were doing in Washington at this time around reconstruction. Um, so this is great. Okay. So my pick is capital men, the epic story of reconstruction through the lives of the first black Congressman by Philip Dre. Um, first of all, I love that your mom wants to kind of like look into the background of this and how you know like this actually happened i think that that's um really helpful for looking at where we are today and how we got here so this book goes back to reconstruction post-civil war right so it's this time of idealism and sweeping change which might sound familiar to people living now um so people were like yes like we've done it right like we ended slavery. And so we have like, we're going to get citizenship rights for all of the freed enslaved people. And they're going to like black men are going to be granted the right to vote, not black women. Um, So these 16 black Southerners were elected to the U.S. Congress. So they came into Washington and they were going to advocate reforms. And it was exciting. But they almost immediately, right, are faced by these horrible political opponents who are using uh, libel and bribery and just intimidation to rob them of their base of support. So it focuses on the lives of these people. And it starts from that kind of really like high of the immediate uh, na- like beginning of Reconstruction to the very beginning of Jim Crow in 1877. So you kind of see like, right, you start off being like, yes, everything's great. And then it's like you set the stage for how America was then going to be for the next 90 years. And I mean, still is just not as blatantly. Um, I think it gives you a really good kind of background. And also, because it focuses on the lives of these 16 congressmen gives you this, like, window into their humanity and like gives you people to identify with, right? So not just like, this is like what was happening with like Black history. It's like, these are these people and this is what happened to them. And this is how, despite their greatest efforts, the people who were in power over them were able to still take away their rights. Um, so again, that is Capital Men, the epic story of Reconstruction through the lives of the first Black congressman by Philip Dre.
1: You're going to read question two.
0: I am going to read question two. <laughs> I am read question Do two. It. <laughs> Carrying on is... Uh, Hi, gals. Your World War II suggestion, my grandfather would have shot me, got me thinking about my own family history, though hopefully nothing so awful would come up. More than my own family history, I am interested in learning more about the places my ancestors are from, especially Germany before the World Wars, the Philippines, and Hawaii before it was a state. Historical fiction or nonfiction recs are both great in any format. Thanks, Kristen.
1: Okay, I picked History of the Philippines by Luis Francia, which, as you can imagine, is a history of the Philippines. Um, so this starts from uh, like pre Hispanic Philippines. Uh, the The Spanish Empire came to the islands in I think the, yeah in the fifteen hundreds and the sixteenth century, uh, and for a lot of us. Who have ever learned anything about the Philippines? That's basically where our education starts. Although most of us don't ever get anything before World War II. Um, but the the archipelago had a really rich culture. Um, obviously, had indigenous populations far before um, the Spanish showed up. And this book starts with that way, like way pre-colonial history. Um, and then once the Spanish get there, it is nothing but colonial history up until uh, they gain their independence in in the forties, the nineteen forties, uh, going from the Spanish, sometimes the British, depending, um, and then to the U.S. And there there are a lot of details in this book that I was completely unfamiliar with, especially having to do with the pre Hispanic uh, Philippines. But even like the the really really strong Muslim presence that has been there. Since essentially civilization started to form, like since the religion existed um, and still remains there and really um, stubbornly resisted Spanish rule. I didn't know anything about about those folks. So that was really interesting to learn about. Uh, And then you move up through all of the various um, rebellions against Spanish rule, which... The Philippines didn't have a cohesive, like, national identity until the Spanish came and took over. And then the people who lived on the islands came together over several hundred years to kind of buck that rule. So um, that evolution is really fascinating to read about. And then you get to General MacArthur, who is a really controversial figure in the Philippines, uh, and his presence during World War II and before that, and then our relationship with the country now. So the book moves up pretty, to pretty recent history. I think it was published in 2010, and it stops, I think, in 2008. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a great overview, like a, a nice 101 introduction to the history of the archipelago, um, and is a nice, I think, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anecdote, almost, to uh, the ways that the relationship between General MacArthur and the U.S., and the Philippines is characterized here, um, which is that, you know, we're partners and General MacArthur saved the islands from the Japanese and all this kind of stuff, which is all fundamental nonsense. Um, and, you know, the reality was that the Philippines were facing either colonization by the Japanese or colonization by the US. And it was kind of a function of like who won. Um, but this, that's not really a perspective you're going to get unless you read a history of the islands written by someone from the islands, and this author is. So that's History of the Philippines by Louis H.
0: Francia. Um, And I think it's interesting that you said Germany before the World Wars, uh, and I fortunately have a book that is pretty focused on that, which is called Germania in Wayward Pursuit of the Germans and Their History by Simon Winder. So it's kind of this mix of like a travelogue and vignettish history, um, it's propelled by this wish to reclaim the, uh, quote, brilliant, chaotic, endlessly varied German civilization that right, the Nazis basically ruined. Because if people think about Germany now, you think about Nazis. And that's extremely unfortunate because Germany, like even before it became unified and was Germany, it was all of these, you know, very varied, fascinating states. Um, and they have this rich, um, uh, odd history I'm going to go with and sort of like this uh Germania kind of title so essentially it goes from it's this uh odd food and castles and princes and fairy tales and horse mating videos which I haven't gotten to yet so (laughs) (laughs) I'm very interested in this um but it's also about the limits of language and the meaning of culture and and he just kind of um it's 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 all over the place but in a very cohesive way if that makes sense so if you're looking for just a a Uh, quirky history of Germany which it sounds like you you don't want to get you know again mired in in sort of the the world wars I would recommend this again it's Germania in wayward pursuit of the Germans and their history by Simon Winder
1: all right question three is from Lily who says I'm really interested in hiking and travel books I've already read the current big two books wild and a walk in the woods but I want to read more books like these either fiction or nonfiction. also road trip books would be good too all right, I picked An African in Greenland, which is by Tete Michelle Kopamasi and translated by James, James Kirkup. This book is so great, and it's from the NYRB, which is a, a lovely small press. Well, for a small press, they're huge, but they're an independent press. Uh, and this is a memoir. Uh, Tete Michelle was a teenager who was born in Togo, which is a small country, I think near Ghana in Africa. And he found a book about Greenland and decided that he wanted to go there. So he started saving up money as a teenager uh, and then, like, set out to walk (laughs) to Greenland. And it took him over, no, it took him, I think, eight years to finally get there, working his way through Africa and then Europe. And then, um, and just having, like, the most excellent side adventures as you would if you were doing this sort of thing along the way. And then when he gets to Greenland, um, he is essentially the first black person any of these people have seen and their reactions to him are so funny. And then he decides he wants to go farther north to, I don't remember the name of the spot, but he wants to go farther north to where the Inuit population that lives uh, north of Greenland is. Um, And so he sets off to do that. And it's full of stuff like, you know, he knocks on igloo doors and the people are like, oh, hey, welcome. Would you like some blubber and to live here for three months while you explore? And he's like, sure. Sure. I would like that as a matter of fact. Let me try that blubber. Blech. But like the, the, the loveliness and like the hospitality that he encounters along the way along this, you know, almost decade long of travel, um, is really fascinating. And so it's not it's not it is a travel member, obviously, but it's also about this like dogged pursuit of a goal over several years. Um and seeing something in a book when you're a kid and deciding that's that's it. That's the thing that I want. Like that's what I'm gonna spend my young adulthood pursuing and then doing it like that is just that is persistence that I cannot fathom I would have given up after like my first blister so that is an African in Greenland by Tete Michelle
0: Kopomasi that sounds really good uh my uh, my pick is The Ridiculous Race 26,000 miles two guides one globe no airplanes by Steve Healy and Vali Chandra Chandra Chandr- Sakaran. Um, I really enjoy Steve Healy's writing. I read his uh, novel, How I, I think it's How I Became a Famous Novelist. And then <laughs> he has since written The Wonder Trail. But this is awesome because it's this bet that he makes with his fellow TV writer friend about who can get around the world first without using airplanes. So you get this They're like, they're in this race, so they're trying to do it quickly, but they're also going through all of these really fascinating places like Rio and the steppes of Mongolia. And, you know, they travel via ocean freighter, which is its own thing because it's like, how are you going to get passage on a freighter? And then they go, um, Steve Healy goes on the Trans Siberian Railway because he thought that always sounded so romantic and like fascinating. And it's really, really fun. And um, they're, I think, the the bet is over, like, some really nice scotch. Like, whoever gets back first gets to, like, get this bottle of scotch. Um, but, again, I really recommend it. It's fun. It's travel-y. Uh, the Ridiculous Race, 26,000 Miles, Two Guides, One Globe, No Airplanes, by Steve Healy and Vali Chandrasakaran. And the next question <laughs> is... Hi, I first read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil a few years ago, and although I have read and loved so many books since, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil still stands out as one of those books that completely captivated me. There were many things to love about it, but I especially loved how it made me feel completely immersed in the location and how it allowed me to indulge in the idea that it was a mysterious and almost unreal place— I would love suggestions for either nonfiction or fiction that would give me that same feeling about a real life location. Any ideas? Thanks. Janine.
1: All right. I picked Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova. Uh, this is a work of, well, it's a, jur- a journalistic memoir? Um, memoirism? No, that's not a thing. Journal lore? I was trying to make a thing happen there, right? Combined journalism and memoir, and it did not work.
0: You're doing a great but job.
1: Thank you. I'm going to continue. So, uh, Kupka is from Bulgaria, where she lived uh, as a child and grew up. Um, and then she emigrated out of Bulgaria uh, as an adult. And she goes back um, present day to explore the border that Bulgaria shares with Turkey and Greece. And during the Cold War, that border zone was supposed to be an easier way to cross into the West than, for example, trying to get past the Berlin Wall. Um, however... Since it gained that reputation, it was constantly, like, swarming with soldiers. But it was also uh, called the Red Riviera on the Black Sea. So um, it was also, like, a big vacation spot. Um, So there were always a lot of, like, spies and speedos kind of a thing trying to cross the border. And people, like, doing stuff on the black market. And soldiers who were barely, you know, out of pubescence Um, And she remembers all of that. And she, like playing on the beach while the electrified fence was humming a few feet away. And she wanted to go back and see what had changed essentially since the Cold War ended. So a good, you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, And what she discovers is the, it's just sad. Like it's, It's sad, but it's also really haunting and kind of creepy. She goes deep into these, you know, forests along the border of Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece that are ancient and, you know, like Thracian civilizations ruled there thousands of years ago. And there are people who live in these areas who kind of... Not ignored the Cold War, but sort of like went on about their personal business while that was happening in these really remote villages in these creepy as hell forests. Like, so, so creepy. And she discovers all these like altars and religious rituals like deep in the woods. Um, this animism that still exists. Uh, and, but they're at the same time that that's happening and she's getting these stories. She takes, she like interviews people about what their lives are like since the Cold Wars ended and, the family that they lost, um, and all of that. But she also examines like the refugee crisis, people who are leaving Iraq and Syria, fleeing Iraq and Syria and coming across into Turkey and how they're doing that, um, you know, like coming through Greece and and all of that. And she tries to cross the borders various times, um, and you know, the troubles that she encounters there. Um, and it's also, you know, the Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey border is very much like a, a, a division between east and west so she's and there, you know everyone not everyone but there's also like religious divisions in this area between the orthodox christianity uh islam and then this kind of more pagan animism that a lot of the villagers are still practicing so it's very much a book about not just this physical border but the borders between cultures and languages east west um you know capitalism and communism and what all of that looks like in this like big stirred-up melting pot of this one spot in Bulgaria. So that's Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova.
0: My recommendation is Salvation on Sand Mountain, Snake Handling and Redemption in Southern Appalachia by Dennis Covington. He is a uh, New York Times reporter, and he sort of started out being on assignment to cover the trial of this Alabama pastor who was convicted of attempting to murder his wife with poisonous snakes. Which... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> right. You're like, sure, 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 sure. Um, so he goes down there, but then he ends up going into this snake handling church, which, you know, it's it's part of um the religious culture in southern Appalachia. So he starts out the book being really kind of uh, let's say journalistic and detached and just, you know, chronicling, and it gets more emotional as it moves in and really kind of Gets you. You talked about wanting it to be, you know, kind of like immersing you in an environment, and it does that with Southern Appalachia, and um, it's it's just sort of this captivating exploration, if you will, of the uh, power and sort of extremity of faith. But this, the people who snake handle this, is based on a, a chapter in the New Testament in Mark. Um, they're going off this like. What is it like three words or something like they handled snakes and then they're like, oh, great, we got to do that or else it's not we got to do it. So um, I think that if you're really looking to like dive deep, um, then this is this is an excellent example of it. Sorry. Salvation on Sand Mountain, Snake Handling and Redemption in Southern Appalachia by Dennis Covington.
1: Before we continue, I th- that's my Delilah voice. Delilah.
0: <laughs> We're going to do our second
1: sponsor. Do you have Delilah? Is that a thing you have in Chicago? We Delilah I, After Dark? Yeah, we know of it. Okay, great. I never know. I always make, I like very consistently make these ridiculous Delilah After Dark jokes and I'm always worried no one's going to get them. <laughs> anyway, our second sponsor is Library Reads. I'm really excited about this one. Um, library Reads is a monthly library staff picks list for adult fiction and nonfiction that draws upon the incredible power that public librarians and library staff has in helping to build word-of-mouth buzz and attention for new books, and the important role that libraries play in creating audiences for all kinds of authors of all different genres. Library Reads represents collective favorites, books that staff at public libraries have loved reading and can't wait to share with their uh, patrons. This is actually the fifth anniversary year of the Library Reads list, So you can visit libraryreads.org to learn more about how you can nominate titles for the monthly list and to see what the organization is up to and has in store for the future and the next five years. So thank you for sponsoring the show. All right. Question five is from Olivia, who says, I'm looking for fiction and nonfiction epistolary novel recommendations. Nonfiction epistolary novel. That's, that would not, hmm. Moving on. As a kid, I absolutely loved the Dear America series, but I'm having a hard time finding YA or adult books in that genre. Dangerous Liaisons and Dracula were not my cup of tea. I enjoyed The Diary of Anne Frank, The Color Purple, Dear Thief, and I, Vampire. Okay, so we split this one. This is my 1% fiction recommendation. Um, I am recommending Francis and Bernard by Carlene Bauer, which came out a few years ago, and I didn't hear anything about it. It came out in 2012. Um, and if you look on Goodreads, it's got like fewer than 400 reviews. But I love this book so much. This is an epistolary novel based on the lives of Flannery O'Connor and Robert Lowell. Flannery O'Connor, of course, is a famous mid-century American Southern Gothic writer. Robert Lowell is an American poet. And in real life, they met, I think, at a writer's retreat or something like that and became really close friends um, and had a um, really like voluminous correspondence over the course of their adulthood until I think Flannery was the first one to die and she died very young of lupus. Um, so this is based on that. Francis and Bernard are the names of the characters, obviously, because that's the title, and it takes place in the 50s. They meet at an artist colony. She is, as Flannery O'Connor was, a very self-important, serious, devoted Catholic writer, and Bernard is kind of a, like, ridiculous, playboy kind of poet. So it seems like they would have nothing in common. Um, but they very quickly find out that they have a lot in common. They're asking a lot of the same questions about faith and passion and love and friendship. And so uh, they don't become like super fast friends at the at the artist colony. But he writes her a letter later after they've both gone home and she responds. And then soon they become, you know, kind of swept up in this really, really deep, quickly forming friendship um, that is based almost entirely in letters. Uh, they do meet... A, like physically meet in real life uh, a couple of times in the book but mostly it is just entirely them considering these like what is the nature of sacrifice also how is your dog kind of questions Um, and like I'm breaking up with my girlfriend and I'm considering whether or not love or life is worth anything I tried your pound cake recipe it was amazing like I really love the way that epistolary novels can do this juxtaposition of of like quippy, off-the-cuff kind of like, you're my friend and I'm inquiring about your life, but also we're both deeply intellectual beings leading thought in America, and let's talk about Catholicism, Um, which I'm not Catholic, so a lot of actually what the Francis character who is supposed to be Flannery O'Connor talks about, um, like the rites and the rituals of the Catholic Church, I did find a little bit like, I don't know what that reference is, and so I would have to go look it up, which is fine, but if you're not Catholic, I'm just saying you might need to have a Google next to you, But otherwise, it's a pretty short book, and it's just lovely, and the questions that it's asking are are so relevant. So that's Francis and Bernard by Carleen Bauer. Uh,
0: Your weird juxtaposition thing in in, in epistolary novels, or just in letters in general, reminded me of... uh, in. 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret they have a thing where T.H. White was basically telling a friend of his that his book sucked but then in the PS he was like uh on a lighter note did you see the Princess Margaret like he's just like here's some gossip about Princess Margaret sorry
1: (laughs) pretend like I didn't just insult your work oh
0: gosh okay so um my pick for this I was thinking about when you obviously there isn't epistolary novel nonfiction. Um, but you said you like diary of Anne Frank. So I figured, you know, sort of someone writing to themselves as a diary, um or at least making some kind of autobiographical narrative um, could also work. So I chose incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. Um this is one of the few extant slave narratives written by a woman um, in America. So this came out in 1861. So immediately prior to the Civil War, it was kind of overshadowed by that in the wake of its publication. But again, due to the the sort of small number of of these types of narratives, this is it's a really an amazing addition to um, our knowledge of the time. And she was uh, Harriet Jacobs lived from 1813 to 1897. She tried to escape seven times. And then finally, was it? Which I can't even imagine, right? Like failing six times, and then I'm sure having horrible repercussions happen, and then trying again and making it on the seventh. Um, she reunited with her children in the north. The one of the things that she did that's kind of amazing is she took the sentimental novel kind of approach of the 19th century and applied it to this type of to her work in order to kind of connect people with it she also talks about how northern white women don't under like they don't get it she was like they don't understand how terrible enslavement is um and she by calling them out while she was living in that culture which was you know of course supposed to be like oh like they're free they're in the like north it's great and she's like no it's not and i i think that that's amazing um again it is incidents in the life of a slave girl by harriet jacobs and our next question Hi, I'm not a huge reader, but I've been trying to read more nonfiction. Good job. And recently read An Astronaut's Guide to Life by Chris Hadfield. It's basically about his personal journey that brought him to becoming an astronaut. More than anything, I found this book really inspiring and motivating. I tried to look for more motivating books, but all I found were self-help, and this is not what I want. I would really like to read more books like Hadfield's about interesting people who have really great successful careers, but also had to put in a lot of work to get there and who have interesting outlooks and attitudes on life. This is what really motivated me after reading Hadfield's book. Books written by women are also a big plus. Violet.
1: Okay. I love questions from people who like aren't self-identified readers. They're, they're like my favorite. I don't know why. Because I, I it's a chance to proselytize. That's why. That's why. I do know why. Okay, I picked Make Trouble, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead by Cecile Richards. Cecile Richards was, until very recently, I think until early this year, the president of Planned Parenthood. She's also Ann Richards' daughter. Ann Richards was a governor of Texas, a Democratic governor of Texas. Um, and she's been in the news a lot recently for obvious reasons of the GOP trying to steal your rights to reproductive freedom. Um, so this is a memoir. And all in the same way that Hatfield's book is a memoir, but also a like, here's how I did life. Um, and ways of thinking about life from his perspective, this is very much the same sort of thing. So, of course, she is raised in Texas, which is uh, historically very conservative, but her parents, uh, her father was a civil rights attorney, and her mother obviously ended up being Governor Ann Richards. Um, so her, the, her and her siblings grew up in kind of a different sort of household, um, and she started very early being, you know, a troublemaker. She protested the Vietnam War, um, Went and like stood by her mom through all of her mother's political turmoil, and then when she came out of college, she starts working as a labor organizer, which I really like. Love that about her, and I did not know that that's how Cecile Richards got her start in activism. Um, but that, but that's it. She started working as a labor organizer across the South, and I think a little bit in California, helping women who worked in, I think it was mostly healthcare. Um, earn, you know, a living wage and organize, form unions, working especially with Hispanic women and people of color um, who were oppressed in a variety and in several intersections of ways. And so she transitioned from being a labor organizer to working for Planned Parenthood with a lot of things in between. And, and the ways that she talks about, like, and then I started this nonprofit, and then I started this nonprofit, and we defeated this terrible legislation, and, like, I did it in my living room. Also, I have two children, and, like, also my husband. You know, She's just, like, really doing all of the things, like, all of the things. Um, but she never tries to pretend that she doesn't have support or that, you know, her partner isn't helpful Um, and she isn't doing, she's not doing this, like, I'm a woman and I can have it all kind of a thing. She's very much like, I am fighting this fight. Um, she works really hard. Sometimes she has regrets about either choosing her career or choosing her kids at different moments in time, which I think we can all relate to. Um, but you know, in the same way that Hadfield takes his, um, astronaut training to, and then applies it to greater things. Like one of my favorite parts of Hadfield's book was when he talks about how astronauts are not trained to think positively they're trained to think negatively and to go to like the worst possible thing that could happen and then work backwards and make sure you're putting like stop gaps in place so those things don't happen and then you can apply that to other things in life um so richard is talking a lot about like how her work as a labor organizer or an activist when she was younger um and what those techniques and thought processes look like you know in like the 80s how we can, t- but we're super effective in a place like Texas. How you can take those kinds of thought processes and apply them to your own personal activism, uh, whatever it is that your you know choice of issue is in in whatever political work you're doing in your own life. So that's Make Trouble by Cecile Richards.
0: The first uh, book that I thought of when I saw this, uh, which is the one I picked because I was like, that's <laughs> it just seems perfect, is Happy Accidents, a memoir by Jane Lynch. Um, there's obviously she wrote this in her uh I think either 50s or early 60s and a lot has happened since then because people keep on living if they're writing memoirs most of the time but it's pretty much a story of how she achieved success late in life and I love stories like that right because then you're like aha I I do can like maybe in my 40s 50s 60s etc uh do something really amazing so she put in the work. She started acting when she was in her teens and she ended up going to Second City in Chicago and being there for 15 years and, you know, like, doing an okay job and, like, doing something she loved or really enjoyed but also not, you know, achieving, like, fame as we would know it now or celebrity or whatever. Um, And she kind of kept going in that vein. She unfortunately then developed uh, a a tendency towards alcohol slash became an alcoholic. And, um, but she kept doing her career. She she did some amazing things with Second City. She did the I think it's the real life Brady Bunch or something. It's like the sketch comedy thing about the Brady Bunch that was really well received. And then because of basically a Frosted Flakes commercial combined with a meeting in a coffee shop, that's how she ended up doing Best in Show with Christopher Guest, which I think is how (laughs) a lot of people first came to know her. And she did not do that until she was 40. Like that was her like big break was at 40. And then Glee was, I think, in her 50s. So she kind of talks about that and how just this series of, again, the title is Happy Accidents um, led to her doing this. But I would I would argue, right, that it's her consistent kind of hard work with that and just putting in the time. And she, she does address that in the book. So um, it's pretty short, but also, again, like a pretty inspirational read. So, uh, yeah, Happy Accidents by Jane Lynch. I bet that would be an amazing audiobook. Oh yeah, for sure.
1: Okay, Uh, our last question is from Lisa, um, who says, "I've I've long been a huge fan of audiobooks, but never thought nonfiction was in my wheelhouse. After being introduced to podcasts and to my great surprise, I've discovered that I love listening to nonfiction selections. The catch is that the book needs to be as engaging as a podcast. Examples of recent audiobooks I've enjoyed as audiobooks are American Fire and Killer of the Flower Moon. I also love books with buzz. Okay, um, I picked Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Doughty, which is backlist. It's a couple of years old, but it was super buzzy when it came out. And she has since released a second book about death rituals um, that was also very buzzy. So she's an author who's, like, doing the thing. I listened to this on audiobook, and I think it would have made an amazing podcast. She also has a YouTube channel. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Caitlin Dowdy is a mortician? Mortician, yes. Um, she's a mortician, and she has a, a YouTube channel that's about... You know how Americans and Western civilizations approach death and funeral rites and um, the different ways that different cultures approach death and funeral rites and, and that sort of thing. And what like what actually happens to your body after you die if you donate it to science or if you decide you want to be cremated or all of those things. Um, and so she's very, since she started off with the YouTube channel and was big on social media before she got the book deal, she, I think, writes in kind of a podcast style or in like a YouTube script style. Um, so it's a really, really accessible audiobook. And this one is a memoir about her childhood and then her um, adolescence, or not adolescence, her young adulthood coming out of college, where she has a degree in something that's like medieval history um, that wasn't particularly marketable. She graduated in the recession, couldn't find a job. So she took a job that she found like in a wanted ad as a, mort- not a mortician, there, there's a particular term for it, like a crematory technician or something like that, operating a funeral home's cremation furnace, which I'm sure there's like a more elegant phrase for that. But cremation furnace is what it is. Um, And so part of her job was, you know, both operating the actual machine that performs the cremations, but also like dealing with the families that are grieving. And she has to travel in this horrible van, this like rundown van, to houses where people have died to pick up the bodies to take to the funeral home. And it's full of all of these little details that you don't necessarily think about unless you have experienced a death sense of someone who's like super close to you who maybe lives in your space. Um but it's just fascinating, you know, and and she covers a lot of like the way different cultures deal with cremation, like the way that um she has a, a Buddhist family come in who is cremating a family member and the ceremony that they want to perform, not in the funeral home, in like The furnace like at the actual furnace and the ways that she has to learn to like navigate that respectfully and all those sorts of things but it's a it's a really fascinating if you like i feel like american fire since you like american fire you like these kinds of like they're not micro histories but really dialed in looks at one particular kind of maybe weird thing and this is exactly what that is like it's a weird thing that we all experience all of us are going to die and have our loved ones die also so this is something that touches all of our lives and she but something that most of us don't really know anything about about what happens in the background when you go to a funeral home so um yeah that's what it, i thought it was fascinating so that smoke gets in your eyes by caitlin Doughty.
0: Um, and because you picked true crime with killer of the flower moon, I decided to go with, I would say pretty buzzy book of, uh, the real Lolita, the kidnapping of Sally Horner and the novel that scandalized the world by Sarah Weinman. This just came out. I think the day we're recording. Um, so essentially what this is about is, of course, the, the famous novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov um, features, uh, from the narrator's point of view, he kidnaps this young girl, Lolita, but her name is Dolores, uh, but he calls her Lolita. And it's it's entirely his perspective. So the whole novel, I mean, it's a classic, but you also feel gross while reading it, mm-hmm. um, which is is Nabokov's point in part. But this book looks at the author Sally Weinman realized or, or came to in her investigation find out that Lolita... Lolita was most likely, and she makes a pretty compelling case for it, based on Sally Horner and her kidnapping in 1948 when she was 11 years old. So she goes through, it's kind of this investigative book that looks at the life of Sally Horner and it also looks at how Nabokov was writing the book and which he and his wife kind of cast this shroud of secrecy over it. Um, And there's like a lot of like mysterious notes and stuff that you have to. So she does. She really does investigate it. And I think in a really um, uh, compelling, fascinating way. So you look through and you learn this story of this girl who history is pretty much forgotten. And I I really applaud Weinman for bringing her story to the forefront. She had this very tragic life. But um, a life that I think is, is definitely worth telling, especially because one of the awful things about lolita right it's it's this uh, i'm sorry if you love this book it's it's a classic but it's by this man it's from this pedophile's perspective and then lolita herself is given like a tiny bit of humanity by the narrator but if you want to kind of cleanse yourself i would recommend Mm -hmm. (laughs) this book so again it is the real lolita the kidnapping of sally horner and the novel that scandalized the world by sarah Weinman.
1: I feel like the humanity that Humbert gives Lolita in that book is entirely accidental. Like, Nabokov wrote it in I, almost against Humbert's will, which is just yeah. creepy and squicky and gross. I love that book. I hate that book. <laughs> you know? <it's> <laughs> yeah. I love that book, but I hate reading that book. I'm glad I have read it, but I would never read it again. It's one of those. And that is our show. Jazz hands thank you so much for listening and Alice thank you for coming on and covering for Jen while she traipses about in Ireland um, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts it makes the show easier for other listeners to find thank you so much to our sponsors you can find us on social media I'm mostly on Instagram these days at I'm Amanda Nelson where can people find you
0: Alice? You can find me on Twitter at It's Alice Time <laughs> I
1: love that sound and we will see you all next week